This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Abigail Dean, welcome to Better Reading. Hi, Cheryl. It's great to be here. Thank you. Oh, it's so lovely to have you. I'm super excited about our conversation. Girl A is our book of the week. Everyone is talking about it. I think not just in Australia, I think everywhere. Let me introduce you and then please share with us the news that you got today. Abigail grew up in the Peak District of England. She graduated from Cambridge with a double first in English, formerly a Waterstones bookseller. She spent five years as a lawyer in London. The rights to Girl A sold in 29 territories and it's been described as a debut of the year. The Guardian calls it incendiary, beautifully written, authentic, humane and full of hope. She now works as a lawyer for Google, is currently writing her second novel. Well, I will say there's a high achiever there, but tell me what news you got today. <laughs> yeah, it, it's been a very exciting day, Cheryl. I, I'm sort of, if, if I'm very inarticulate on this, um, on this recording, you, you'll know why. Um, so yeah, today in the UK, we found out that Girl A has hit the number two spot um, on the Sunday Times bestseller list, which is very surreal and, and fantastic. And I, yeah, I'm, um, I'm just very, very kind of happy at the thought of those characters and the story getting out to so many readers. It, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's fantastic. I want to start, I want to go back and talk about how this, because you're really so accomplished, but what it is that got you to where you are today. So talk to me about, you know, what you were reading when you were young. Um, where did you grow up? How did that landscape affect or have an influence, if you like, on your writing career? Yeah, so I grew up in um, in the Peak District, which is in the north of England. And it's this very, very beautiful, but also incredibly bleak um, landscape. You know, it consists of sort of moorland and mountains. I grew up there as an only child. So I think you know, I had quite a lot of time, I guess, on my hands in some ways. Um, to be reading and to be thinking about stories. And I think that the landscape kind of lent itself to, to maybe the sort of darker side of things, because certainly the stories that I, you know, I loved, even from a pretty early age, they had a sort of slight darkness to them. Um, so I, I loved R.L. Stein's Goosebumps books. Um, I, I loved Christopher Pike. Um, and Roald Dahl as well, you know, I think that his stories have got such kind of wit and warmth to them, but they, they often also have a, a real dark side. So I guess in a way it was an upbringing where I had 
a bit of free time and, and a sort of definite affectionate for, for, for some dark literature. And I think that, um, that that sort of lent itself to my writing and, and certainly to, to a lot of imagination as well. I've talked to so many authors, hundreds as a matter of fact, and there is a common thread in some authors, well, in, in a lot of authors, not all obviously, where they've been an only child so they don't have the distraction if you like of siblings or they've grown up in remote areas I mean you've got both actually and so (laughs) and so imaginations run wild I guess and I guess that there is the time to read to think to ponder and to imagine and I've seen I, I have noticed that quite a bit in my conversations with authors talk to me about that I mean you know also growing up as an only child yeah, I, I think it was that it, it was the case really that I um, I, I definitely had um, had time on my you know on my side, and I think the, the weird thing is as a teenager I um, yeah I, I actually kind of begrudged that time often you know I, I wanted to be a bit more sociable like some of my friends who lived kind of closer to the to, to the nearer cities, um, but but I think it it gave me the time to, to sort of develop small sessions with things in a way um so you know i think whether it was the latest novel i had read um or whether it was a video game um whether it was particular characters i guess i had um i had the chance to sort of dwell on them quite a lot and you know as a teenager i also wrote quite a bit of fan fiction um so i sort of had that 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 uh space i guess to, to, to completely to become engulfed in a way in these sort of fictional landscapes and fictional worlds. Yeah, in a way that, I don't know, I don't know how how, um, healthy obsessions necessarily are, but I certainly developed them in relation to fiction um, as a child and and as a teenager. Were you thinking, so many of us get asked, and and I, I find myself doing the same with my nieces and nephews, and what do you think you want to be when you grow up? Was that a writer did that was was that something that came to you or was it something you thought about or had you always wanted to be a lawyer if you had asked me when I was a child you know when I was kind of nine or ten I think I would definitely have said that I wanted to be a writer and um, that there might have been a brief spell when I wanted to be a vet um, but I, I'm awful at the sight of blood and I would have been a dreadful vet <laughs> without a doubt um, so I, I think it was always something that you know that, that was there and my mum in, in typical kind of mum fashion has recently unearthed some very old stories that are you know like stapled together bits of A4 paper um, providing evidence of, of this fact, which yeah, I'm obviously very grateful for. Um, and to, to be honest, though, I, I think as I you know, became a teenager and, and certainly into my 20s, you know, when I became increasingly cynical, I, I didn't really think of writing as, as an option. I think in many ways, um, I was definitely slightly intimidated by the creative writing scene at university, and it, it was just a bit of a pipe dream. I think it, you know it felt like something that was unstable. And as somebody who's kind of classically quite risk averse, I yeah, I, I don't think um, I don't think I would almost have dared to acknowledge that it was something I wanted in a way. So. You obviously finished your schooling and you decided at some point to study law. Were you writing parallel to that career at the time? Very little. Um, I think that, yeah, I joined a law firm when I was kind of, um, I think, 
24 or so. And it was it was a bit like it sort of being submerged um, for a while. I, I think it's a very all-encompassing job. Uh, I think that the hours are pretty all-encompassing. And writing, it, it, I think it kind of went on the back burner. I think part for part of the reason you know, that, that I said in terms of it felt like a bit of a pipe dream and something that, you know, it, it, it had been a hobby and it had been something that I loved, but it, it didn't feel very realistic. Um, and I think what was kind of, you know, slightly sad for me anyway is, you know, you're in your 20s, you want to be socializing, you know, you want to be kind of striving in your job. And, and to, to be completely honest, I, I kind of abandoned writing, I, I think. You know, I... I I sort of acknowledged um, and accepted that it wasn't for me. Um, and I look back on that now with quite a bit of regret, as you might imagine. I'm just wondering, I understand that completely, because when you decide to uh, be a lawyer, for instance, it's a very clear path. You go to university, you take the particular subjects, you you know, it's very um, linear, if you like. And at the end of it, you get a certificate and you are a practising lawyer. However, on the other hand, if you want to be a writer, that path is not so clear. And if you like, the certificate is getting published, if, if that's, you know, the comparison that you want to use. But that's not guaranteed. It's not a matter of pass or fail, is it? Yeah, it, it, I think that's exactly the case. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a great risk, I guess, you know, in terms of seeing publication as being the sort of you know, the, the, the ultimate goal that, that ultimately might it might never happen. Um, and I think certainly for me, that was quite difficult because, you know, you feel like uh, certainly as a teenager, you know, as a child, I, I'd, I put kind of so many hours and, and so much effort into this, you know, and I were very kind of, I, I really recall um, working in the mornings before school on my parents' really clunky, you know, desktop computer when, when I must have been about 11, um, you know, trying to sort of squeeze in the hours. I'm, I'm not quite sure how I have that discipline because I, I don't think I quite have that work ethic anymore. But, but like, yeah, it's that case that, you know, you put in this time and ultimately the, the end goal feels very... Um, potentially unachievable, you know, and a matter of, of luck, I think, to, to some degree. Whereas, yeah, I definitely found solace in the sort of certainty of a legal career. Um, you know, if you put in this much, you will get this much back in a way that with writing, it was never quite the case. No, it's never that clear, is it? That path is never as, as clear cut, I guess. And I'm not saying that being a lawyer is easy. I mean, as you said, uh, the hours are incredible and I'm sure the work is as well incredibly difficult, but it, it is different in a way. So when is it that you decided that you're going to start having an, a go, another go at writing? At what point in your career and what was the trigger? It was just before my 30th birthday. And um, so I'd been a lawyer kind of for six years or so. And in that time, I'd written very, very little. Um, you know, some short stories and some character sketches. Like I was quite precious about my writing as well. You know, I, I had certain things that I thought had to be the case that I had to write by hand, you know, that I had to have 
a really decent chunk of time, you know, like hours rather than minutes. Um, I'm just going to go back to handwriting. And sure. <laughs> was it because it was different to the writing you were doing as a lawyer? Do you, did you want to differentiate it? Is that why? I've never thought about it in those terms, really, but, but I think that probably was part of it. I, I think I had quite a romantic idea of writing uh, at that time. And it was often, I think it was also, you know, I I'd often kind of got these particular notebooks and I think I'd read, you know, particular theories about if you write by hand, you know, it means you'll get more words down because you won't be going back to edit. And, but, but I think it, it, it attached to that kind of romanticism that I had around writing and around the creative process, I think definitely in a way that I didn't and didn't have the opportunity to do that for, for law. I, purely from a practical perspective. So, and this is probably a stereotype, so you can uh, agree or disagree, but the legal mind, is it, a, you know, is it left, left brain, right brain? Is it completely different to the creative mind? I mean, I would imagine that it is. And how do you tap into one versus the other? How do you switch on and off? I think that in certain ways they are opposites, but, but in, in, in other ways they are hugely complementary. So I, I work a lot um, in at, at Google in drafting contracts. Yeah. And one element of that, I think, is weighing every single word and thinking, you know, if this was one day the subject of a disagreement, you know, if, if it was one day before a court, how would it be read? Um, and how would it be interpreted? Uh, you know, and if it's ambiguity there, is it ambiguity that will help you or hinder you? Um, and I guess to me, that isn't that different an exercise from the sort of sentence by sentence, word by word editing and analysis of um, of of creative writing um you know I, I think every word you maybe consider how will it land with a reader you know what impression does it give you about that particular character or about their action or about you know what they're feeling at that moment in time yeah. so I think I, I see sort of similarities in terms of the impact of words and and their you know their their different meanings and and you know their combined effect I guess Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
So when you started writing the book and you decided this is it, I'm going to put my creative brain on, I'm going to go back to writing, and had you been dipping in and out or was it this is the project, I'm going to start now? It was more the latter, I think. I made a bit of a deal with myself um, because I was coming up to, to this kind of landmark birthday in my head. Um, and I, I think I sort of had realised that I had neglected this thing that I really, really loved. Um, and I would often sort of say to my, you know, my partner, I'd really like to be a writer. Um, and he just kept saying, well, like, you know, Abby, you're not going to be a writer if you don't write anything, <laughs> which is a pretty True. good, it's pretty good <laughs> piece of it. Blunt, blunt feedback from, um, from my husband. <laughs> um, yeah, brutally honest and yeah. irritatingly accurate. <laughs> So I kind of made a bit of a deal with myself that I was going to leave, um, I was going to leave you know, my job at a law firm and take three months off, you know, take take a summer off work. And yeah, I, I, I lined up another job for after that period um, because I am a standard risk averse lawyer and I couldn't quite live with, with not having something, you know, waiting on the other side. Um, but the deal was that I would treat writing like a job and, and I would go along to the local library five days a week, you know, sort of 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. and would write. So, so it was a bit of an all or nothing, I think, you know, and for me it was, okay, let's treat this as a, as a profession for, for three months um, and, and see where we end up. So the idea that you had for Girl A, was that something you had been brewing on or was it when you decided to write, you thought, okay, well, I've got to come up with a, with a plot. I've got to come up with a storyline or had that been in your mind for a while? It had been in my mind for quite a while um, and particularly the case of, um, of, of the sisters who are, who are at the heart of Girl A. Uh, so Lex and Evie, I had had this idea about these two sisters and their bond for a very, very long time. I, and I'd written actually kind of, you know, scenes that didn't necessarily make it into Girl A, but you know, scenes about these two characters. Uh, and, you know, I think some of that is being an only child and, and having that fascination with that sibling relationship um, and, and how close that bond can be and kind of wondering you know what would happen if um you know if that is put under strain you know what happens if that sibling relationship you know the shared childhood what happens when that has been difficult um how does it translate into adulthood and i think that that those ideas and and that sort of line of thought kind of coincided increasingly with the rise in the interest in true crime um, and, and I'm a pretty big consumer of true crime as well. You know, I've, I've watched the, um, the Netflix documentaries and, and listened to the same podcasts. I'm sure many people um, listening will have, um, will have kind of partaken in. Um, and I think that, yeah, the idea of this kind of fascination with sibling relationships and with families sort of started to combine with that real interest in true crime. Um, and particularly the question of, if something like this happens to you as a child um, or as a teenager, how does that translate into you know into the months and then the years and then the decades, I guess, mm. that follow that? Um, that that was kind of the question that I was really 
interested in and something which I think is often not really the focus of true crime, which is often sort of much more fixated on the particular event um, rather than rather than the aftermath. It's unusual because it's really it's really quite gritty and it's interesting that you brought up um, the true crime aspect because it reads like that sometimes, you know, as a fiction book. It's got that and, you know, not just in the storyline but in the way that you convey the story. But what I've found completely interesting about this book is how people describe it and not just us at Better Reading everywhere, beautiful, beautifully written, you know, humane, this, that, which really doesn't often match a crime story, does it? Crime fiction. Those descriptions usually aren't of a crime fiction novel, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I I, I do I do see that. And, and I guess it's, um, I, I certainly kind of, as I was writing it, was very, I wanted it to be a book about hope yeah. um, and about these relationships as well between the siblings, you know, the, the, the sort of chemistry and the, the family dynamics. And I, I wanted those to be as important as, as this kind of cr- these crimes that lurk um, in their past. Definitely. So tell me your path to publication. So you've done this. I mean, you know, it's a huge investment in time, in energy, in creativity and financial as well, I would imagine. And then how does it culminate? I mean, how, how is it that you got published? Sometimes, Cheryl, I think I look back and I'm like, I'm still not sure. Like, how did this happen? <laughs> um, <laughs> So I, um, I I had these incredibly grand um, delusions, frankly, about finishing the novel in this, this three-month period um, that I had off work. And obviously that was incredibly arrogant, I think, looking back. Um, I, I probably got about halfway um, in that period. Um, and it was like an unedited halfway. So that's probably actually, you know, a quarter or a third of the way. And I spent the next kind of nine, ten months um, working on on the novel um, to finish it and then to edit it. Uh, and that was the really tough part, I think. You know, is one is the, the luxury of kind of going every day to a library was very much over, and it was you know that, that's the period when you're you know you're, you're looking at your evenings and you're you're spending your weekends in the spare room, um, you know, kind of tapping away. <laughs> I, I finished um, I finished the novel in kind of May of the of the next year, so May 2019, and did some research uh, into agents. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd given the book to three or four people um, who were big readers, and they had they had really loved it, and they'd said you should at least have a go. You know, like try contacting agents, see how it goes. You know, we've loved it. And if it doesn't happen, then, you know, you've, you've tried. Um, and that's, that, that's the thing, that's, that's something to be proud of in itself. Um, so, yeah, I sent it to five or six agents. And I made the very foolish decision to do this when I was on holiday um, for a week and had some sort of free time and obviously completely decimated that holiday. Because <laughs> I think as soon as you send something to agents, even though you know that they are busy people and they have a lot of clients already, you, you're, you're waiting for an email back you know, for, for a yes or a no. So I spent a good kind of, you know, few, uh, uh, wasted a fortnight of uh, a vacation checking my email. Um, and yeah, heard that a few agents were interested, which was, I think, the first kind of external, um, you know, 
positive sign that really felt okay. You know, this, this actually, you know, this this could happen, um, which in itself was was sort of slightly mind blowing. And I, I signed with my agent uh, Juliet in um, in sort of June time, uh, and then we spent another three months editing Girl A. So one of the things that I loved about Juliet as soon as I sort of met her was that she had some you know, pretty um, serious criticism about the manuscript. She, she, she really felt that it was great, but it wasn't as good as it could be. Um, so there was a whole kind of extensive, I think two, two rounds of it, you know, extensive editing um, with Juliet before we sent it to any publishing houses um, at all. And yeah, eventually, I think it was kind of September, um, so the whole summer of editing. And then in September, we sent it out to um, 19, 20 publishers in um, in the UK. Mm. And it was another email refreshing <laughs> nightmare, nightmare experience. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, then, you know, the, the publisher uh, interest was kind of really overwhelming and wonderful. Um, you know, we, we heard that nine publishers were interested in in the manuscript. Uh, and the sort of, you know, out of that, there was a, a very surreal two weeks of, um, of discussions with those publishers before uh, before settling, um, you know, on HarperCollins as being kind of, you know, their, their vision for the book was just fantastic. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, have, we ended up going with them. Um, so looking back, it still feels like a very strange story to be telling, like, like definitely more fiction than, um, than, than anything else. A lot of debut authors um, often say to me, you know, they have that imposter syndrome that a lot of us have, and uh, particularly women, is that they still don't believe it's true, you know, or they don't believe it's real until they see their book in a bookshop. Did you have that? I did a bit. You know, there were there were a few moments that I remember really vividly. Um, so, bizarrely, when the manuscript was sent out to publishers, I was actually away for work for my legal job. Yes. Um, and I was in a taxi in rural India. Oh wow! <laughs> when Juliet started, <laughs> Juliet started phoning me. And I remember that I, I you know, I, I was, it was that kind of signal where you can answer your phone, but you can't hear a word the other person is saying. <laughs> How awful. <laughs> so I think it was, it was pretty torturous. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I sort of waited two hours to, to get back to Wi-Fi um, to, to, to chat to her. And so there, there were these kind of particularly you know, very strange moments where it should have sunk in, but maybe it didn't, um, it didn't quite. Um, and I think that's one of the dangers in a way. I think, you know, exactly as you said about imposter syndrome, and um, I think I, I completely agree that I think it's something that often does affect women in particular. One thing I've tried desperately to do is to, is to really take in those joyful moments, you know, as a writer, that there'll be so many moments when you have bad news delivered to you in various forms. And I'm very much kind of just trying to relish the the, the positive moments because, yeah, I think otherwise they can pass you by and, and you know, you, you have to try to enjoy them, um, yeah. exactly as you said. Well, there's been a few, right? You know, rights sold in 29 territories, huge, but also soon to be a TV show. Is that right? 
Yeah, so Girl A has been optioned by um, by Sony um, for, um, you know, I think the preferred format is a limited wow. edition, um, limited, limited series, yeah. Um, and also, I, I don't know about you, I'm a complete TV addict, yes. so, so for me, this is like the <laughs> ultimate dream. Um, it would be a good excuse to sit in my pyjamas and watch Netflix all day. Because yeah, it's work then. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I'll definitely have. I'll definitely have a better excuse than I normally do. You know, it, it's it's sort of yeah beyond kind of wildest dreams. I think to be completely honest. Well, congratulations. I mean, you know, it's so deserving. It's it's a fabulous book. It's called Girl A. Abigail, thank you so much for chatting with us today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.